Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the on-the-ground edition for November 20th, 2014. I'm Esther Averam with Michael Byfield in the studio. On the Ground lifts up voices of activists and activism here in the nation's capital and around the blue planet. Well, as the wait continues for a grand jury decision in the killing of unarmed teenager Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, we'll hear voices from Ferguson. I'm found out the plans by D.C. activists for action after the grand jury announcement. And finally, shifting gears in our final show before Thanksgiving, activists here in D.C. want McMillan Park in northwest D.C. to remain a place that can produce clean drinking water and even food for residents of the city. All that is coming up, but first our headlines. In India, victims of the deadly Bhopal gas leak have won a victory just weeks before the disaster's 30th anniversary. Five women launched a hunger strike recently to demand the Indian government expand its compensation claim against Union Carbide over the catastrophic leak at its pesticide plant. Amnesty International says an Indian official agreed to demands, including a revision of the government's claim that only about 5,000 people were killed and another 5,000 disabled. Campaigners say the actual death toll is about 23,000, with more than a half million more poisoned. The toxic legacy continues to this day with Union Carbide and its current owner, Dow Chemical, refusing to pay for cleanup. Here in the U.S., in the nation's capital, a vote in the U.S. Senate on Tuesday evening failed to get the requisite 60 votes needed to approve the controversial Keystone XL tar sands pipeline, which climate activists say will only worsen the acceleration of climate change and forestall the move to renewable energy sources. President Obama has announced that he will detail tonight his plan to take executive action on immigration reform. Advocates for reform say that such executive action could impact as many as 5 million people residing in the United States. Christina Jimenez, an activist with United We Dream, told the PBS NewsHour that President Obama has to act because Republicans have refused to do so. What I think um, it's urgent for immigrant communities is that the president has made a promise to address immigration because what we saw in 2013 and even this year is that Republicans were unwilling to work on an immigration reform bill that was passed by the Senate. And very clearly, as Speaker Boehner said, that they won't move forward on immigration. And what we've rather seen is Republicans time after time voting to defund programs like the Deferred Action for Travel Arrivals program. A new report says there are spies at the Smithsonian and that the federal government has vastly expanded its use of undercover agents with officers from at least 40 agencies posing in roles ranging from welfare recipients to protesters. The New York Times reports the use of undercover officers has expanded to virtually every corner of the federal government, including the Department of Education, NASA, and the Smithsonian. At the Supreme Court, police disguise themselves as student protesters over issues like abortion. 
on Capitol Hill, workers who typically serve food to Congress went on a one-day strike on Friday to push for a $15 an hour wage and the right to form a union. In an historic first, workers from the U.S. Capitol building joined hundreds of fellow food service and cleaning workers from the Pentagon, Smithsonian, and other sites. In February, President Obama signed an executive order raising the minimum wage for federal contractors to $10.10 an hour, but workers say that still is not enough to survive in the nation's capital. D.C. home care workers will announce on Tuesday that they are filing the first in a series of lawsuits for unpaid wages, sick time, and overtime. The first lawsuit will target agencies that were shut down after the city's Medicaid fraud investigation earlier this year. Home care workers who were employees of these agencies could be owed years of back pay and are urged to call 1-800-956-8918 to find out more about the lawsuit or visit WeCareForDC.org. And finally, Common Dreams reports that in the wake of Governor Jay Nixon's Monday afternoon declaration of a state of emergency in Missouri, activists and civil rights groups are speaking out against the move they say threatens the civil rights of protesters on the ground in Ferguson. Nixon's announcement, which came ahead of the grand jury's decision in the police shooting death of 18-year-old Michael Brown, is both premature in its application and presumptuous in its intention to the hundreds of peaceful demonstrators who have embraced their constitutional right to protest, said NAACP President William Brooks. Hands Up United organizer Tory Russell noted on Twitter that Nixon does not have the authority to declare a preemptive state of emergency as Missouri law mandates that a disaster of major proportions must have actually taken place before such a declaration can be made. Russell quoted a state General Assembly statute that reads, The existence of an emergency may be proclaimed by the governor or by resolution of the legislature. If the governor in his proclamation or the legislature in its resolution finds that a natural or man-made disaster of major proportions has actually occurred within the state. Yesterday on the ground spoke with Eugene Perrier, an organizer with D.C. Ferguson and the Answer Coalition, and also Salima Dofo, National Vice Chairperson of the Black United Front, about the latest in Ferguson and what is being planned by activists here in D.C. to respond to the grand jury decision, which is expected in the coming days. We just mentioned uh, in the headlines Governor Jay Nixon's Monday afternoon declaration of a state of emergency in Missouri. Uh, do you think that Nixon's declaration is designed to inhibit protesters or that it, it will inhibit protesters? Well, I, I don't know if it will. I mean, I think what we've seen in Ferguson is that people have, uh, you know, braved all odds so far. But I think it's certainly designed to act in such a fashion. I mean, to you know, with no real indication of, of any quote-unquote state of emergency now that they've assembled this massive military police-type presence, all of the different coordination, the command headquarters, and, you know, really sort of putting in the minds of people that after the verdict comes down, or after the non-indictment or indictment, but let's assume non-indictment, that's what they're doing, it, comes down, that there is going to be a massive presence of police in the streets. Well, you know, some activists have called for pre-planning by organizations around the country for when the grand jury decision does come down. In other words, you know, let it be known in their community what people should do when in the event of the grand jury decision. So does D.C. Ferguson uh, have a plan for D.C.? 
Yes, we do, absolutely. So we are calling on people the day after the decision comes down to go to Mount Vernon Square Park. So just down the road, uh, just down 7th Street from the Mount Vernon Square uh, Metro on the yellow and the green line, Mount Vernon Square Park, where Carnegie Library is. The 7th in Massachusetts Northwest to meet there at 7 p.m. And then we are going to march into Chinatown from there, uh, really picking up where we left off of our, sh- our, our protests that were shutting down major commercial areas and saying no business as usual until there's, there's justice, not just in Ferguson, but I think here in the district too, where there are a lot of militarized police tactics and things that I think need to change in terms of accountability uh, of the community over these kind of practices. Okay. Now, you know, of course, I know D.C. Ferguson is among the organizations that have basically talked about making the Ferguson moment into a movement. And so so what has been the success of that effort, you think, in here in D.C.? Uh, you know, I think it's been very successful. I mean, I think not only did we see really, I mean, over, I think, about two months, uh, give or take, of sustained demonstrations week in, week out, more or less, that we're able to bring hundreds of people out, shut down major commercial areas, and really interject into the consciousness of the district and around the country that this was something that wasn't going away. We were in every local media news outlet, in the New York Times, on television, people on the streets who recognized that, wow, this is like a really serious thing. It's not going away. It's not just about Ferguson. It's about this you know, epidemic of police terror happening all around the country. Obviously, for something to be a movement, it has to continue to be ongoing, and we're hoping to do a number of different things and met a lot of different people, brought a lot of new people together and out on the streets, and I think that we have really catalyzed something here, and this decision, whatever it may be, whether it's a non-indictment or an indictment, will will be, I think, a landmark in continuing to push this forward. Salim Adolfo, National Vice Chairperson of the Black United Front, a part of D.C. Ferguson, said the coalition has been successful in making the links between the issues of police brutality and killings and economic conditions in the community. Mass incarceration is built upon, is, is built into the fabric of capitalism, um, the way the economy in America works now. You know, a prisoner can get less than a dollar, you know, a day working in whatever prison system, whatever job they have within the prison system. And private prisons are consistently being built. There's probably some being built right now that, you know, built more than those schools being built. And so police have to arrest people, have to convict them, and have to put them into these private prisons in order for those businesses to keep going. So we've shown where, you know, the intersection between uh, crime, you know, media, and, you know, the police department and the justice system all intersect, you know, through D.C. Ferguson. That was Salim Adolfo of the National Black United Front, and before that was Eugene Perrier of D.C. Ferguson and the Answer Coalition. When we come back, a communique from activists in Ferguson. Stay with us. No peace and no patience I'm under surveillance Wish that I would have paid less Different gloves, same fits I'm marching on Ferguson I'm marching tonight A nation at half-mast 
We don't want to burn down our own neighborhoods. We don't want to we don't want to be in a state of war with the police. All of these preparations are being made with the expectation that a system that is supposed to work for everyone is going to fail once again for black people of America. It's just depressing to me because I know we're going to lose business. I'm probably going to lose my job. It's not our fault and that we're paying for choices and mistakes that were made by the Ferguson Police Department. I mean, it's just dark, it's gloomy. It just doesn't feel like the happy, bright atmosphere that it normally is. We have two peak holes in, um, that we can look out the front doors and that's it. A human being killed another young human being, shot him multiple times with a high-powered pistol and left him in the street. In the last few months, after Mike Brown was killed, I can name at least three people that were murdered by police that were unarmed. Kim King, Kajin Powell, Mike Brown, Von Derrick Myers, there's four people. My name is James Knowles, I'm the mayor of the city of Ferguson, I've been mayor for four years. The mayor of Ferguson is a bitch. He can't help us. He's not on our side. He can't, he's not for the people at all. His unfortunate shooting death has brought a lot of things to light in the community. I heard about a statement saying that, you know, Ferguson is over this race problem or the anger. I, I can't understand it. It's, it's like he lives in another world. For me personally, uh, you know, this is a, uh, this is required a, a great deal of patience. Like you really care, he don't care about us, bro. He not for the people at all, he for himself. It does, you know, it does create a, a great deal of stress on the family and uh, we haven't had that uh, really affect us too much. I feel like there's, there's nothing that can atone for the systemic oppression and the loss of life that we suffer every 28 hours where a black person is gunned down by vigilante or police violence. Until we address the issues that allow that statistic to live and breathe as we go on, there's nothing that they can say or that they can do that should be able to placate someone with the memory of Mike Brown lying for four and a half hours out in the street. Every two weeks for the last six years, a black person has been killed by a police officer. Police officers killed 400 pe local police officers killed 400 people last year. That is a problem. We love you, Drew Dog. You my son, but you still like a brother to me still. More than a son, but it's gonna be all right, little bro. I love you to death, and I can't wait to meet you in the afterlife, baby. If there's a thing in the afterlife, I can't wait to meet you there. You know what I'm saying? Hey, but we love you, Drew. We love you, Drew. We love you, Drew. killing young black youth my age in the streets. We 90s babies, 80s babies. I don't give a f how many guns you got, none of that. We react off our feelings. I wish that they would have did the right thing. I wish that, you know, this was a golden opportunity for our politicians to be on the right side of history. Um, but they chose not to, so for me, man, it's like, I've always felt, you know, if it's us, then it's you towards the system.
when they actually offer something that stares in the face of anti-black sentiments that exist in this country, when we actually start to talk to each other and hear each other, and we don't throw the, the race card term around, we don't throw the, the racism word around, this innocuous word that no one knows what it means, when we actually sit down and we go, no, these systems that we have in place are anti-black, these policies that we have in place are anti-black, this shoot first, ask questions later is anti-black. The way that we treat our black slain men and women in the media after they've been gunned down and can no longer speak for themselves is anti-black. When they throw that political bone and we can actually address it and start to make change, then we'll be satisfied. I'm not here to try to validate the justice system because there's a lot of changes that need to occur. But the, but the indictment of Darren Wilson is the first step of many that need to take place. But we got to get them indicted first. Nobody's asking for Darren Wilson to be killed. Nobody's asking for him to be shot in the street. Nobody's asking for him to be strung up like we have been for every decade of every century that we've been here. They're at, we're asking for him to be charged for the crime that he committed in front of witnesses. There's a system that's in place. You created the system. You enforce the system every day. But we're saying, oh, that guy should be included in the system. That's all. If there's no indictment, people, quite frankly, I think would just lose hope in America. No indictment is a, a declaration of war from the state, from the police, from the system itself, issued to black and brown, oppressed people, poor people of all creeds. That's what I believe. This is a nationwide problem. This is an American problem. This is a systemic oppression problem. We're going to keep making noise until we talk about some real systemic change for people. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty yes. to fight for our freedom. Yes, it is our duty to win. It is our duty, duty to win. win. We must love and support each other. We, we must love and support each other. We have nothing to lose but our change. We have nothing to lose but our change. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. The, the interesting thing about Ferguson, right, is that there's actually nothing unique about the situation, right? Like, cop kills black person, cop kills black person every 28 days all year. So, you know, why Ferguson? Why not Beaver Creek? Why not Oakland? Why not somewhere else? Um, why not New York? Why not Staten Island? Uh, Ferguson decided they had enough. It's also not just Ferguson. Ferguson is just the epicenter. And Mike Brown is just a catalyst for a much bigger conversation. And the only reason people came out is because they're tired of it. So that means it must have been happening all over for a very long time. Ferguson sent a message to oppressed people around the world uh, to remind them that black people in America have not forgot the root of our struggle. It reminded them that we are in the same class as them, that we have the same exact story that they have. I don't want to see a better tomorrow. I want to see a better forever. I want to see when my kids, they kids, they kids, they kids. I want to see what my ancestors think they did by giving me the right to vote. I want to see a better forever. But tomorrow will not help me. Waking up tomorrow and being like, yes, we finally free, and then waking up Tuesday and seeing my brother dead in the street, that's not going to help me. I want to see a better forever. What you saw out there is just people hurt and really responded to a situation from a very humanistic level, throwing out all the textbook rules, you know, 
uh, you know, we're regular people. You don't run up on the police. You don't engage with a militarized forces of regular American citizen. Like we're people who have regular lives. We shop at Foot Locker. We go to Walmart. We we eat McDonald's. We're regular human beings. We're regular American citizens. This this isn't some magical coop of young people who sat in the house and said, man, one day we're gonna slide on the police. Nah. But we saw somebody dead in the middle of the street, disrespected, and, and we knew we had to do something about it. That was audio from Ferguson Speaks, a video released by Hands Up United that includes exclusive footage of Vondrit Meyer Sr., the father of another black 18-year-old shot and killed by a St. Louis police officer last month. It also includes Ferguson Mayor James Knowles III and celebrated artist and HandsUpUnited.org co-founder Tef Poe. When we come back... In our final show before Thanksgiving, Michael Byfield will interview activists here in D.C. who want Macmillan Park in Northwest D.C. to remain a place that can produce clean drinking water and even food for residents of the city. We'll be right back. Since the new world water and every drop counts, you can laugh and take it as a joke if you wanna, but it don't rain a full week some summers, and it's about to get real wild in the half. You be buying every yard to take. Hedges acting wild, sipping boom, pumping dank, competing with the next man for higher playing rank. So now I ain't got time try to be Big Hank. The bank, I need a 20-year water tank. Cause while these knuckleheads is out here sweating they good, sun is sitting in the treetops, burning the woods, and it's a flame. And welcome back to the on the ground edition of Community Comment. This is Michael Byfield, and I have here in the studio with me today uh, Mr. Hugh Youngblood and Linda Yar. And uh, Mr. Kirby Vinan of Friends of McMillan Park. Uh, he is uh, the director and uh, either uh, activist uh, opposing the proposed development of the national landmark. Um, I'll just let you guys uh, go right into it. Uh, Hugh, um, uh, could you uh, just give us a brief history of McMillan Park? Sure. Thanks for having us on the show. McMillan Park is 100 acre. 100-plus acre historic waterworks and recreation facility it spans the borders of wards 1 and 5 in the heart of D.C. Sites listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and it was designed as part of D.C.'s Emerald Necklace of Parks by the Olmsted firm that created grand parks across the U.S., such as Central Park in New York City. The endangered portion of Macmillan Park that we're discussing today includes 25 acres of green space and 20 acres of underground vaulted caverns, and it's owned by the taxpayers of the district. From the early 1900s until the beginning of World War II, the land was used by the D.C. community at large as a central park for recreation, cultural events, and gathering. It was Washington's first de facto racially integrated park. Friends of Macmillan Park supports sustainable adaptive reuse of the park that's compatible with the historic character of the landmark. We agree that something positive needs to happen in Macmillan Park. Is the uh, water filtration system still operational? No, you see the water filtration function at Macmillan Park was decommissioned. Well, the slow sand filtration plant was decommissioned in the late 80s when the uh, federal government retired the facility and sold the 25-acre portion of the park to the D.C. government. However, it's, um, it's a natural technology that's ready to be turned back on at any point when it's needed. So, in essence, this could this be used as a backup uh, in the event of an, an emergency? Sure. It beats, it's a perfect um, mitigation to climate change and uh, 
other natural disasters that could uh, otherwise cut off our drinking water supply, we could turn this facility back on uh, with a, a little bit of maintenance. Um, I understand that uh, this is a designated landmark by UNESCO. Um, in a, not UNESCO, no, that's not correct. <laughs> okay, and in a in a hearing that um, uh, I heard um, the city council, there was so some people have made uh, analogies to UNESCO World Heritage sites and how this could be uh, this this site has a lot of similar characteristics. Um, we should protect it as such, even though. It's not quite added to that formal process, but this is a D.C. landmark, and it's a U.S. landmark on the National Register of Historic Places under the National Park Service. Okay. Uh, we have um, left before the city council votes on this, or is there um, MIT? The roundtable hearing last week on Island Park, and that's the process by which the, the city government determines that public land no longer has a public use, and then they go about uh, privatizing it and selling it off to a to a private party. And uh, so at that hearing, we had uh, 100 people signed up to testify. The hearing went on all day. And uh, the overwhelming majority of the community testified, we do not need to give away this parkland to a developer. Uh, we need this for public purposes, both recreation and waterworks and other creative adaptive reuse purposes. Um, as follow-on to that process, we expect the uh, the city council will try to take this to a vote at some point in the future. We don't know what the timetable for that action might be, but we're prepared to take action uh, as uh, any schedule gets announced. Um, as uh, just a regular person that lives in the community, uh, why, why would I care? Well, this is a, a attempted giveaway of valuable public land. That's uh, it's the first issue for the taxpayer to care about. Um, we, I guess everyone has their own position on whether uh, private ownership uh, should trump public ownership. Um, in, in this case, uh, our D.C. government does have a really ugly history of giving away a lot of valuable public land to private gain. And uh, this is, uh, some say, the, uh, the last attempt at a uh, Mary and Barry-style sweetheart real estate deal in D.C. that's trying to circumvent all of the required procurement processes that are in place to protect against this kind of stuff. Uh, uh, Linda, um, would you say um, this is a, a form of gentrification? I hate that word. I think that that concept is used to pit one group of people against another. My most passionate feeling about this whole situation is that the city government and our elected officials are attempting to give away the people's property, all of the people of Washington, D.C. This is our last opportunity to have 25 acres, two miles due north of the Capitol, on a major artery in and out of the city that is really a gold mine. This is worth an unbelievable, that the value of this is just unbelievable. Uh, it's assessed at a hundred million dollars. The um, valuation, the, the, the uh, recognized valuation, uh, market valuation of a, uh, versus assessment is two times. So at a minimum, this is worth 200 million dollars. But frankly, 
the with the way values are going up in that area of the city there uh the uh, assessed value lags way behind market value yet not only is the city proposing to sell this to the developers for 32 million dollars so a third of the assessed value but the city also is committed to spending Let's see. It started out when I, when I, if, this is for site remediation. When I first heard about this about six years ago, they were valuing that at $50 million. That's what the taxpayers of Washington will pay in order to prepare this to sell to the developers. $50 million six years ago. A year ago, it was $60 million. Last week, Councilmember McDuffie said it was $67 million. When this is finally done, when the, when the land remediation is finally done to hand this to the developers, who knows how much that'll cost? And what we're talking about is a jewel in the middle of the city that we're preparing to give away. Now, this may have made sense when it was first thought of 20 years ago. D.C. was the crack and murder capital of the, of, the, of the country, and the population was plummeting. But look at how values are now. We don't have to pay anybody to move into the city. We don't have to pay anybody to do business in this city. They would pay us, but instead we're using the same old model of give it away, give it away, give it away, and you have to ask why. If this, is at, if this is costing us $200 million, $250 million to give this to the developers for their own profits, I just don't think that's right. This is the people's property. You feel free to jump in. Okay, so Michael, I'm happy to address that, that issue uh, directly. This, uh, this proposal would certainly increase gentrification in our neighborhood. Um, to provide some more context, uh, this is the, the Bloomingdale community over in the western border of Ward 5 along North Capitol. And uh, we, uh, the current proposal is to turn this uh, park and recreation facility into a, a complex of million-dollar condos, um, uh, high-priced office buildings, and uh, a country club campus. Um, so this would, and it's, it's already driving lots of speculation in our neighborhood, and uh, it Overall, uh, we, we suspect that it would have a, a negative impact on the overall supply of affordable housing in the surrounding area by, uh, through the speculative effects. Uh, Kirby uh, Vinen, um, you had some comments in relationship to uh, the very same issue. that, uh... Among other things, <clears throat> this is a neighborhood that I've been in since 1986. Uh, I lived with although as uh, both you and Linda have mentioned there there are some newer folks moving in but I live in a neighborhood that has so many houses uh, that have been occupied by the same for the same uh, by the same family for four and five generations uh, and they would like to stay there this is grandchildren of people who moved into the 50s for example um, what this would bring here the proposed development is so out of scale and proportion to that neighborhood we have two little corner stores in that neighborhood right now. Now, granted, we're on North Capitol Street, which is a commuter route out to uh, out to Maryland, and Michigan Avenue and near Franklin Street, which both go go out to Maryland there. But uh, 
the traffic is already ground to a halt in that neighborhood. So put all these things together here, and I'm looking at the scale of what the city is considering and would like to have uh, any proposed development be a more open process so that we can s consider these things. We, we feel that these things are all being ignored. High rises on that site, which was our neighborhood park, traffic, which is already near a, a standstill, and when you build 10-story 10, 10 condominium buildings right across the street from a place where people have made their homes in houses built in World War One, been there for four and five generations, there's something in scale and context that's missing here. And I'd like to see an open design competition sort this out. Okay. Um, let me... Um is there um, any um, the uh, the city council talks about uh, creation of jobs and uh, um, I guess um, tax based um, contribution of um, uh, revenues uh, and tax revenues? Uh, what are your comments on that? Any of you? Do you want me? Well, to so I I'll jump in on that, Michael. Uh, we could get the same economic benefits from relocating this project to any affordable, non-historic site in the District of Columbia. Um, they insist the only way that they can ever create any jobs is by destroying our park, and that's a fallacy. They could move their proposed medical office buildings directly across the street into the hospital campus. They could move all of the housing components to some affordable site that's some equal distance far from a metro station anywhere in the District of Columbia and provide 100% affordable housing instead of the small fraction of affordable housing they say they can do because here because they have to overcome the cost of destroying our park. Just leave our park alone. Uh, we have a caller on the line. Um, uh, could you please uh, give your name and um, caller? Yes. How you doing? Yes. Your name, please. Uh, uh, my name is Jabari Paltrow, um Northwest. I think one of the things that people have to do is that the law that the D.C. government is is trying to use is to, first they have to surplus the property. But in order to surplus the property, the government is is has to certify in their statement that this property no longer, quote, has any public use, unquote. So, but the government is never required to provide a certification process whereby they look at a bunch of needs and assess the use of this property to accommodate these these needs. So basically it's a just a fiat decision because there is no tangible there's no tangible process by which they actually decide can we actually use this property for something else? Now, obviously, if a developer can find something to do with it, then obviously anybody with any kind of sense could apply that property to some kind of public use. So what I would propose is that first you, and this has never been challenged, people have to sue in court for the, the, the law to be actually uh, enforced the way it was written. In other words, D.C. should be forced to, to go through a process where, whereby they tangibly state and, and make an assessment, a written assessment that people can, can weigh in on, on how this public property can be used for other public uses. Thank you, sir. Next caller. Hi, this is Daniel Wolkoff. 
Um, you know, this this parkland has been so neglected and um, fenced off by the District of Columbia government. That alone is uh, an offense to the community, an insult to the community. Think about how in Upper Northwest there are parks that you can walk to from every residence. There's wooded hillsides, hiking, biking trails, um, historic parks, uh, Civil War fortifications. And this 25 acres is obviously where we could be enjoying a wolf trap kind of concert stage. Um, we could be doing sustainable agriculture, very millions of pounds of food in the, in the um, underground vaults. You know, things that are going on all over the world in sustainable development. And um, especially like a Glen Echo arts and education campus where our, our youth can be involved in hundreds of activities, performance arts, training. They could be renovating this site and learning masonry and carpentry. You know, this city government is determined to give our resources to the rich at the expense of the rest of us. Thank you. Uh, question. Um, do you believe that um, this, um, uh, with some of the proposed um, uh, uses uh, that, um, that I've heard from uh, different um, uh, interested parties uh, or advocates for, for Macmillan uh, Park, uh, that this could drive um, uh, the, uh, any kind of tourism to, this, to the area? In the proposed condo uses? Uh, no, not, not <laughs> condo uses. <laughs> <laughs> well done, you. <laughs> sure. So you know, it, as as a lot of the callers are saying, as as we're uh, we're talking about, we want an open competition to figure out what is the uh, the future of the park. And I'll, so, to provide some context, I'll tell you a little bit about our organization. Um, Friends of Magnolia Park is a grassroots community organization. It grew from the Magnolia Park Committee, which was founded in 1988 by Tony Norman, uh, who had recently graduated from Howard Law School uh, when local senior citizens asked him to get involved in the project. Since then, we've been working tirelessly on our mission to preserve, restore, and transform historic Macmillan Park for the benefit of the public. Uh, to date, we've collected over 7,000 signatures on our petition to save the park. And your listeners can visit org if they would like to sign our petition and learn more. Um, I personally got involved with the project in 2001 while I was serving as an ANC in the Bloomingdale community. But what we're advocating for is, is very similar to what the, the callers are saying. Um, we want a transparent, competitive process that's driven by the community, and that hasn't happened. We want an open international design competition, and then after we choose a future for the park uh, and, and implement it, we want the park to be operated and maintained by a conservancy for the next hundred years, uh, similar to Central Park in New York. Uh, we want D.C.'s leadership to have some vision when it comes to our public spaces. We should be thinking of the High Line instead of Noma and Park de Bercy instead of Silver Spring. Uh, leaders around the world in places like New York, Paris, Sydney, Seattle, and Istanbul are recognizing the value of their historic spaces and their retired industrial facilities and finding ways to weave them into the fabric of modern life. D.C. is an international city and the capital of the U.S., we should be leaders in sustainable adaptive reuse, although we're unfortunately lagging behind very many other places on the planet. Our organization's vision for Macmillan Park is a grand, world-class destination public space, like you're saying, for tourism, with community and economic activities integrated into the restored underground caverns. Uh, 
Our alternative plan for the park is based uh, on extensive community outreach and data collection and includes things like arts and culture, recreation, commerce, um, infrastructure services like stormwater management, uh, light industrial uses, and urban agriculture. Okay, can I add something about um, what the original, the first caller said? Oh, yes. Um, speaking about the surplusing, this is a concept that in this case has been totally manipulated. For the last two generations, this 25 acres has been behind a chain link fence. The uh, neighborhood and the citizens of D.C. have been denied access to this. That is not because there's no use for it. That's because the powers that be wanted to erase the public memory about how useful and attractive and good for our quality of life this is. And it has been. Kirby referred to his, um, his older neighbors who remember using this for recreation, etc. And that's what that's what we should be remembering. When I go to hearings where the public is testifying, the people who testify in favor of development here, not the developers, not the people who can make money on this, but the citizens of D.C. who testify in favor of it, inevitably say, we would rather have development than a chain link fence. Well, those are not the two choices. We should have a park there. We don't have to choose between a chain link fence and overdevelopment. We have been, our, our memory of, the, of this has been manipulated by those who stand to gain from development. Uh, during the hearing I heard, uh, I heard uh, people talk about uh, a chain link fence. Uh, why is that um, locked up? So the federal government put the fence up around the park at the beginning of World War II to, in theory, protect the water supply from enemy sabotage. And so it was a uh, homeland security risk at the time. And then so the war wound up, and the community petitioned the government, please reopen our park. And uh, the petitions fell on deaf ears. And so it's a major social justice issue that the community has had this park withheld from them since the end of World War II. Uh, <laughs> Uh, they could make the same uh, <laughs> claim uh, today with uh, the heightened uh, fears uh, of terrorists. Well, sure. During the war, I mean, anyone with a with a squirt gun full of cyanide could have squirted water through that fence into the water supply. I mean, uh. and and it's not currently being used for our water processing anyway. <laughs> okay. They the terrorists can get down the hill into where that pond is, where the water is really co being collected at the moment. Okay. <laughs> Um, uh, what about um, the uh, transportation issue in terms of development in that part of the Go ahead. Uh, one of the strongest arguments, we think, in our uh, talks with the Zoning Commission were that this uh, land is one mile from the nearest metro stop, and the proposed development looks to me and to many others like a car magnet. One mile from a metro stop, people just don't walk that far, generally. Sure, some young folks, but if you look at regular employees, especially during bad weather, they just don't do that. Um, the proposal includes, we think, uh, 
corrections, proposed mitigations to that problem that are just way uh, out of uh, proportion to the number of cars that would be drawn to that site. What was the figure? It would bring 6,000 more cars a day to the intersection of North Capitol Street and Michigan Avenue? 25,000. 25,000. The developer was uh, proposing six, and we had an uh, expert who said it's more like 25,000. One mile from a metro, they're proposing the development process well it's it's jointly between the deputy mayor for planning and economic development and uh, uh, the city's chosen consultant are approaching zoning jointly and they the two are saying that to mitigate that they will have some shuttle bus service and uh, bike share which strikes me as ludicrous I mean if traffic is already stopped the shuttle bus is going to be stuck in the same traffic and we're talking about uh, a neighborhood with uh, health facilities up there. And really, come on, sick people, a mother with a sick child is going to take bike share? I mean, yes, some people will. But we think that this has just made a joke out of the whole process of dealing with the transportation crisis that this was caused to the intersection, which is already bad. We would like to see the transportation at that problem at that intersection fixed now. And then consider what level of development is appropriate for that entire neighborhood. The um, I, I know that some some say the process was uh, really not a democratic process that was be really being used in terms of um, community participation. Sure. Yeah. So we have some major issues with the current process. Uh, in general, we we feel it's uh, the process is dated, disingenuous, deceptive, and wasteful. The uh, start at the top. You know the the process is dated. It was used. Uh, the process used thus far in the project is a perfect example of the old guard way of doing business in D.C. It's a sweetheart real estate deal with a strong odor of corruption. There's lack of competition. Um, this yields the, the worst possible deal for the taxpayer. It's a backroom deal that comes out of a black box process. Um, this landmark deserves an open competitive process, the same as you saw at Walter Reed, St. Elizabeth's, or the Franklin School. I mean, competition is a logical, healthy way to get better and more innovative designs and deal structures. An open, competitive process will yield much more creative solutions that reflect the community requirements. Um, this is a disingenuous process. The current proposal fails to align with the community requirements. It was uh, The current plan has abandoned the community requirements established by the Office of Planning in their exhaustive community planning processes uh, conducted from 2000 to 2002. Uh, some of the highlights of those uh, community requirements were that um, the community wants reuse of all the viable underground caverns, wants no high-rise buildings, no medical facilities, and at least 50% park. Um, during the most recent round of community outreach by the mayor's uh, development consultant, um, they purely paid lip service uh, at best to the community input they received. Um, the current plan also ignores the results of the 2012 community survey that our organization conducted. Uh, that that survey uh, had strikingly similar results to the uh, processes conducted in 2002 by the Office of Planning. Uh, I want to um, invite um, uh, our, uh, the community to, uh, to weigh in on the issue. If uh, you want to call in, uh, the number here is uh, 202-588-0893. Uh, 202-588-0893. Zero eight nine three. Um, go ahead. What Hugh just mentioned there about the 2002 Office of Planning uh, uh, report, uh, 
summary of recommendations for the McMillan site revitalization <clears throat> that brought together for the only time in history the the entire city, the community groups, the ANCs, the universities, the agencies of the city government. A wonderfully done report, and let me put that in context. I uh, was first uh, made aware of McMillan and the city's first proposed development for the site back when I met Tony Norman, and I think it was 1989. We talked with the community then, and as Hugh was mentioning there, the 2012 door-to-door survey we did of about a thousand households, and how remarkably similar all these things are. Now, there's only one document of. Uh, document of record concerning these findings and that's that 2002 Office of Planning report. But this is the same thing we found in 1989, same thing that we found in 2012. The community is remarkably consistent in the views for what they want and don't want, right at the top of the list since 1989. We don't want high-rises up there. We don't want something that's going to make traffic worse. We want to have significant surface park and some interesting use of those caverns. It's been consistent even though the neighborhood has arguably changed quite a bit. We're getting an awful lot of younger folks, people with families, and still they're looking across the street there and seeing a resource, and these same things keep coming up. And yet the city is proposing high-rises. All the things at the top of our list we say we don't want over there. All of a sudden, these things are what the city is proposing. Okay. Again, um, if anyone wants to uh, weigh in on the, this issue, uh, the number is 202-588-0893. Okay. Um, I know uh, where I live, um, which is uh, pretty close to Walter Reed, um, which is um, part of the BRAC um, uh, base realignment uh, clothing. Um, uh, the um, there was an open process that uh, the community had um, uh, input in, in terms of uh, what we'd like to see there. Uh, I um, I don't know whether or not this was the same process that was extended to the community, um, to to that community with regards to McMillan. I attended the hearings in front of Muriel Bowser's Economic Development Committee for the finalists for that Walter Reed project. Now, granted, I'm the other side of town, uh, but I was very impressed by the three finalists there. And when I saw watch, uh, arguing in front of the Economic Development Committee of the uh, Council of the District of Columbia was three different very experienced, very high-powered, very well-funded developers arguing that they should be the developer, and they were going out of their way to include additional community amenities, park space, uh, historic elements included in their plan, arguing that their, each one was saying their plan would be less taxing on the fragile infrastructure, etc. After that hearing, I, I approached uh, 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 Council Member Bowser and said, doesn't McMillan deserve the same thing, this kind of open hearing? Uh, my position on that remains the same, and I wish that our council would agree with that position. Uh, we'll take another caller. Caller? Uh, we'll take another caller. Hello? Your name, sir? Yeah. Yeah, hi. This is Jerry Pollock, and I live in um, Ward 5 here in Brooklyn. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, I think that there's an, another point that hasn't been hasn't been explored here, and that's been the disingenuous, as as Mr. Youngblood stated, process that's engaged here. Um, it turns out that J Jeffrey Miller, who was the deputy mayor for planning and economic development, is a former vice president of the lead developer of the Vision mm -hmm. Miller Partners, that is the group that is uh, building this project. In addition, 
DEMCAD, which is the Deputy Mayor for Planning and Economic Development, in collusion with BNP, went to Baltimore and hired a public relations firm to impersonate a community organization and discredit Vision McMillan's Partners. Vision McMillan's Partners procured a copy of the strategic plan, and then in the testimony before Councilwoman Bowser's uh, Oversight Committee denied that they did it. Under the Freedom of Information Act, we obtained copies of invoices approved personally by Jeffrey Milton. So there, there is a, a, a real stench of corruption, as Mr. Youngblood said, that pervades this project. And I think that a lawsuit, as a matter of fact, a lawsuit has been filed. An earlier caller, Mr. Wilcock, has filed a lawsuit to interrupt this process. And I, I hope others will join in and support him in that, in that effort. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you. So yeah, I, I'd like to underscore Mr. Pelican's points. This is a, has been a, a very wasteful process and um, downright criminal in many ways. Um, the government's taking risk that a more qualified developer would otherwise take on its own through the entitlement process. There's a, a huge public subsidy be, being given to a private developer that seems unable to take its own risk here. D.C. government has uh, is essentially given a blank check funded by the taxpayers to this private developer, and this covers their things like their legal fees, their lobbyists, design teams, and their PR firm they've hired to discredit the community. Um, and, you know, this is this is criminal activity um, somewhere in, in the procurement law, and and we uh, we need to expose it. And, you know, we've heard recommendations from folks, suggestions like, oh, why don't you prosecute them all under the RICO Act as, uh, as conspirators and mafiosos, like they're behaving. And, you know, the, and the conspirators that work here, let's be clear about this, are... Mayor Gray, Councilmember Kenyon McDuffie, Mayor-elect Bowser, um, members of the Deputy Mayor for Planning and Economic Development, uh, at least two commissioners on the Zoning Commission who also sit on the National Capital Planning Commission, various ANCs. Uh, it's, it's a really ugly process. Um, we'll take one more caller. Okay. Okay. Uh, we'll... Um uh, I want to thank you for uh, participating. Um, at the top of the hour, we'll go to uh, the news uh, with Askia Mohammed. And uh, following that, we have Don't Forget the Blues with uh, returning Chris the property at full strength. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Peace.